this is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies, you know, survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. I want to talk about a story today that has always fascinated me since graduate school. Lawrence Goldstone opens his book, Inherently Unequal, The Betrayal of Equal Rights by the Supreme Court, by telling the harrowing story of the lynching of Sam Jose. Now, Sam was a young black laborer on a farm outside Atlanta, And he got into a dispute with his employer and and killed the employer in self-defense. Now, during an ensuing 10-day manhunt, the rival Atlanta newspapers, newspapers are so important, right? They excited their readers by, you know, using competing lurid details about what went on. And so as days went on, there were inclusions of stories about rape, about infanticide, and other unnatural acts supposedly done by Sam. These were all added to the descriptions of the crime. Now, when Sam was uh, finally apprehended, the hysteria surrounding his case led to an excursion um, being arranged to transport hundreds of Georgians across Atlanta to the site of his execution. And so on Sunday, April 23rd, 1899, the day after his capture, Sam was brought before an estimated crowd of about 2,000 in the town square of Newman, Georgia. He was stripped, his ears, his fingers, his genitals was cut off, his face was skinned, and his body was burned on a pyre. Souvenir hunters, souvenir hunters, fought over the organs and bones of Sam. And so Goldstone presents the lynching of Sam as emblematic of what happened to the country in the 30 years after the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments were passed. And he said the descent of the United States into enforced segregation into a nation where human beings could be tortured and horribly murdered without trial is a story profoundly tragic, but also, he said, profoundly American. Now, for W.E.B. Du Bois, this lynching was an awakening, without a doubt. Du Bois had arrived in Atlanta to go teach at Atlanta University, but all of the pleasantries were shattered. And Du Bois states that this experience of the lynching of Sam was ultimately what turned him into an activist. It was his beginning of his association with the NAACP, for which we know he was a founding member. And so Du Bois said, you know, I found that this Negro Sam had been caught and lynched and that in the meat market, which was on the way I had to pass to Atlanta University, his fingers and toes were on exhibition. 
Well, I didn't deliver the letter, he said. I went back to Atlanta University, and then I made up my mind that knowledge wasn't enough. And even if people were ignorant of essential matters, which they had to know, they wouldn't correct their actions without more realization of just what the difficulties were. They had not only to know, but they had to act. And so I changed from studying the Negro problem to propaganda, to letting people know just what the Negro problem meant in what the colored people were suffering and what they were kept from doing. I was practically compelled, the boy said, to make this change because the people who were supporting Atlanta University were a little uneasy about the way in which I talked about the Negro problem. Sounds familiar. And pressure began to be put upon the university to do without my service. I had begun to criticize Booker T. Washington, say it wasn't enough to teach Negro trades. The Negroes had to have some voice in their government. They had to have protection in the courts. They had to have trained men to lead them. Well, all this put together put such pressure upon Atlanta University that at last I resigned. I mean, they would have had to drop me if they wanted to keep the philanthropic gifts that were coming from the rich people of the North. So he said, I accepted an invitation to come to New York in 1910 and help the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I had attended their conference in 1909. I became one of the incorporators and founders of the association. I came up in 1910 and was slated to be secretary of the organization. But I didn't want to be secretary because secretary raises money and I couldn't raise money. What I wanted to do was to write and to talk. Now, that sounds like, look, Atlanta is far away over there. Sounds like Lord's story of some other place. We're in Fayetteville. This is nice and pristine. The county seat of Washington County, you know, lying deep in the Ozarks. According to the U.S. News uh, report, Fayetteville ranks four, I believe, based on affordability, job prospects, quality of life. Quality of life. Huh. But what if I were to tell you that underneath this veneer lies a history of violence that has been erased? When I first moved to Fayetteville, I kept asking everyone for the black community. I was like, is there one? Where is it located? I wanted to go there. I wanted to see it. I wanted to be among the people. No one could tell me anything. And I can't help but think that beyond gentrification and other factors that might have caused the erasure of the ability to proper locate the black people here, one of the causes is the story that we're looking at today. And so we have a very special guest today, and I want to introduce the fragments of the story that we're going to be talking to our guest about. And I want you to remember these names. Aaron, Anthony, and Randall. There were three African-Americans. One was a teenager enslaved by white settlers who had exploited their labor and their lives to transform a place near Elkins, which we know was a Native American hunting ground, into an agricultural center to reap the economic gains for white people in 1856. Now, the family James Boone and David Williams and their families were the enslavers who, with their friends and neighbors, victimized these three African-Americans through brutality of bondage and racial terror. And we all know about enslavement, despite what Texas 
<laughs> education department and school districts try to write. We know that enslavement was a cruel system of dehumanization, that people were regarded as property, as chattel. And it denied black families their birthright, their freedom, their personhood. And it buried the stories of who they were in their lives. And so Aaron, Anthony, and Randall, there's not a lot of information that's available about them. Their names enter the written record when the three were accused of and arrested for murdering James Boone and supposedly, allegedly, a robbery attempt on the night of May 29th, 1856. So you see how black people achieve personhood when they become criminals? Not while going about their daily lives as husbands or sons, but entering the criminal record. And so, of course, the case against them, based on hearsay, you know, propagated by the white people, probably to conceal whatever they had done, oral history tells us different. And knowing of their innocence, Aaron and Anthony, um, who obviously must have been terrified, the courthouse, the Washington County Circuit Court, held on June 30th to July 7th, 1856, released them, Anthony and Aaron, for lack of evidence and Anthony by acquittal. Tragically, despite the court's decision, as was often the case, Aaron and Anthony were lynched by a mob of white citizens on July 7, 1856, somewhere between Fayetteville and the Boone Farm. And so Randall, whom the court found guilty, wished to contest the white jury's verdict, but was refused a retrial. And, you know, he was sentenced to death. He was hanged by the state on August 1st, 1856, most likely on Gallows Hill, near the flagpole in the National Cemetery that lies adjacent to the Oak Cemetery in Fayetteville. We're going to be talking about the story that is not something that was being studied in the university. This was a project taken up by the community. And why should Black Studies be interested in that? Because of the investment of Black Studies in the community. There was a strong interest from its inception in linking scholarly production to the lived experiences of Black people. And this says something about the nature of knowledge and its utility. What is knowledge good for? We know that in 1968, as we mentioned before in a previous episode, that the Black students at San Francisco and in Berkeley sought to establish Black Studies program. And they, like other students across the country, demanded that they establish a Black Studies program. But more importantly, they demanded that the program of Black Studies was to be off by and for Black people. And central to this program of Black Studies was to be a Black curriculum containing non-traditional programs, community-based courses, a community, if you will, experimental courses, involvement in the community, establishing relationship with the community, not only keep Black Studies accountable and from being wholly co-opted by the university, which we know as a historically white supremacist institution, but it keeps that original promise of creating knowledge that can be useful for making changes in these communities where people were coming from and maintaining that clear bond. So 
Today we're talking to Rowan Elliott, the leader of a fearless group here in Fayetteville, who led an effort to memorialize the three men I mentioned, Anthony, Aaron, and Randall, the three African-American men. And so Rowan is the coordinator of the Washington County Community Remembrance Coalition. She is a retired K-12 educator who relocated to Fayetteville from Minnesota, where she had served as a director of curriculum and instruction in a metro area school district. And she's a very active community member who, in addition to coordinating this remembrance project, currently serves as the curriculum committee chair for the UARC Usher Lifelong um, Learning Institute. So, Rowan, a special welcome to you to Undisciplined. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, Rowan, as we, you know, give them a little, gave them a little primer about the, you know, what happened to Anthony, Aaron, and Randolph. Um, and, you know, disclaimer here, also worked with Rowan on this project. But could you give the listeners uh, what led you to this project? What drew you to this project? Okay, well, back in the spring of 2018, I had heard about the grand opening of the Equal Justice Initiative Memorial for people who were lynched in the United States from 1870s to 1950s, and also the Legacy Museum down there that really helps to connect the dots between slavery and mass incarceration of today. So both of these sites were having their grand opening And there was what they called the Justice Summit that had Reverend Barber and Ava DuVernay and just all of these luminaries and people that, you know, I've been following and reading about and studying their work and all of that for months. So we went down to the grand opening and I was expecting it to be amazing, but I was stunned by the experience. It was emotional walking through the memorial, and I don't know if you've been there or if you've seen the images of these steel pillars that have the actual names of people and the dates and their states and counties. And as we walked through, we were among people who were looking for certain names, people that, you know, they had some connection to. So families were looking for previously lynched relatives or connections to who were represented. Yeah. You know, what makes history come alive more than an experience like that? You know, as a child of the North, I grew up in Connecticut and then my family moved to the Midwest. You know, stories of lynching. You know, I never thought about there was a really kind of division for me between the South and the North. You know, that that's the way I was taught. Those kinds of things happened down south. And I, I think I had a very sort of abstract notion about lynching and what that was all about. And, you know, being there in the memorial with people for whom it's not an abstraction. It happened. It affected their family. It affected their community. And I started feeling the effect of that, all of that lynching on myself probably for the first time in my life, and I'm not a young woman, <laughs> okay? <laughs> this history just kind of, you know, exploded in me at that time. You can imagine our drive back to Northwest 
Arkansas and all of our discussions around the things that we had heard the speakers talk about. And and, and we're talking and about Brian Stevenson, the great, illustrious Brian Stevenson, yeah. and his, you know, not just his movie that's based on his book, Just Mercy, but I can just mm-hmm. imagine how riveting that was with him along with the other speakers. Yeah. Yes, I think one of the things that they did so well is to connect the past with the present. One of the things I asked about a lot throughout the project when I was interviewed by different people was, well, why talk about this now? Because this happened, this event happened in 1856. So why why is it important now? And I think going through that experience and really being able to see images, to hear voices, to see testimony of, you know, people that are incarcerated children who are incarcerated, and then look at the images from the time of enslavement. It was, I mean, you know, it just, I wish people could be taught that way in school, right. <laughs> you know, because uh-huh. because it really makes it real. But you asked about my inspiration, and that was really it. So we came back to Fayetteville and connected with a friend who knew someone who was working on a Actually, it was a story of her family. She's from this area and is indirectly descended from James Monroe Boone. James Monroe Boone is the white slaveholder that the three black men, Aaron, Anthony, and Randall, were accused of murdering. So that gets us into the next question about piecing together their history. So you connect with this friend who was mm-hmm. already working on her family history. So how do you go about piecing together that history? How do you find Aaron Anthony and Randall in that, in the archive? And, and, and how do you put together who they are and what happened? This is kind of the second wave of emotion. <laughs> okay, the first one at the memorial. The second one was, I think I just wandered into it blindly because I'm not a historian. I hadn't been trained to do that work. And so I don't know what I thought was going to happen. What we started with was the story of this family and the people that they claim to have owned, they have ownership of. And I could just feel the emotion rising in me as I was trying to understand yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it about the Boone family. I know that person did this. This. I mean, there were even things about, oh, this person had a, a miscarriage at a certain time. This person had this kind of thing happen to them. And I'm like, but we're looking for the story of Aaron Anthony and Randall. So we have to wade through the mountains of minute detail about the family, <laughs> the white family, and try to pick out pieces that might give us little tiny clues about Aaron, Anthony, and Randall. And it got to be infuriating because I'm like, well, why do I have to dig through all this and then hope to find a little bit? And maybe that's what historians do all the time. Exactly. I'm not a trained historian, so I didn't expect that to be the case. I don't know what I expected. Which which brings me to, and we've talked about this before, I always bring up my my inspiration for these kinds of things, Sidia Hartman and, you know, her essay in Venus into Acts, where she kind of interrogates the idea that the 
archive is able to document Black life in the Middle Passage, right? And so she's wrestling with the erasure of Black girls and women from public memory and the kinds of racial violence that would not have been recorded in the British archives about enslaved dead girls, you know, um, especially the one she was working on named Venus, and comes to the realization of the painful state of Black women's lives in public memory, as well as a constructive template for the battles that we as scholars, as community organizers, that we have to wage in trying to tell these stories and to do it justice. So it sounds like that you came upon yourself. Exactly. And I think reading Sadia Hartman, I think in some ways emboldened me, you know, to really dig and to reject that the story being told was the story. And I think it was so helpful, not only Cynthia Hartman, but there were others that I was reading at the time that I thought, no, I've got to push this and I've got to say that might be what it says, but we need to go beyond that. And then, you know, how do you create something that isn't there? The life was there. The narrative is absent. You know, I talked about the, the building emotion. I think there was just this tension in the group of, you know, the group of people who were working on, on this project around this because there was this hovering understanding that on the one hand, we have this mountain of detail about what the white people were doing and thinking. Because that's what the archive provides us with. That's the story yeah. that the archives tells. As you said in your introduction, when our three men enter the story, it is under the most obscene of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They are accused of murder, and they are murdered. And then, end of story. We know that Chinua Chavez says, until lions have their own historians, the tale of the hunt will glorify the hunter. So who is telling that story that they're murderers? Who archives that story? Who puts it in the record? So there's a power dynamic there that we have to acknowledge when we're interrogating this and trying to tell their story. Yes. You know, talk about a power dynamic. Here's what I felt as I was at the Washington County Courthouse looking at tax records, trying to find evidence of the lives of these men. I felt assaulted as I was looking at these tax records and seeing these names of human beings along with the livestock and other pieces of property. And I just could barely, I thought, I'm not looking at this. I'm not going to look at this, but I have to look at it. I, I know I, I feel angry all over again talking about it, so we should probably move on. But that was that was part of the process, you know, being a community member, not trained in history, confronting this absent stories and confronting the kind of established or the you know, the the acceptability and respectability of the archive and the recorded history. How dare you question these? I mean, and no one actually said that to me, like, you know, how dare you? In fact, everyone was, was very, you know, encouraging. But the sense of how dare you was there because it was like, well, this is what we have. Well, this is all we know.
Let me tell you this other thing. Here's what's fun about this for me is because I, you're a historian, so you can help me with this too. This is one of the other parts of the process for me as I'm going through and with my, my really critical lens on reading through material about slavery at the time in our county because we really did all the research we could right here in this area. And one of the things I noticed what, that I kept noticing was the use of the passive voice. People were taken. The enslaved people were, you know, it's, it's a, and at one point I remember telling our group, we're going to say who did what. Exactly. And our group were not used you know, rely on the passive voice, but that is very common. I have to tell my students yeah. that they weren't slaves, they were enslaved, because enslaved mm. suggests that they were made, that was not their status that they were born as. They, it was an action that was put upon them by the perpetrators of violence. And they were the victim, but we use slaves to somewhat normalize their status as, as if yeah. it was natural born and there were no violators of these people's basic human rights. So how did you eventually then get to flesh out this history? Did you find oral history to back up or any other documentation to put with the, the, the family history that you had initially found? We did. And some of the historians that I was reading were really emphasizing oral history, the critical importance of oral history, and the legitimacy of oral history. And one of the members of our group was able to bring forth some information that was very helpful to us in being able to tell a broader story. You know, of course, we didn't have enough of everything to just kind of lay everything out in a way that could never be refuted. But then I thought... Who was refused in the archive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Like, as I went through this process, here's one of the impacts that it had on me. I could see my own, you know, my own internalized yeah. racism. The assumption is, is that what's written is perfect and yes. is true and is valid. Mm-hmm. What the white people wrote or what the white supremacist system, even though we knew it was white supremacist and it was violent and it was racist, we take it as gospel what they wrote without interrogating the veracity of what is there. At one point around the middle of the process, I mean, we worked on the project from 2018 and just finished up this year. Around the middle of that time, Dr. Belandra and I collaborated on an article that we wrote for the Washington County Historical Society Journal flashback. You know, when I said earlier, I felt somewhat emboldened by the work of Sadia Hartman. And so we thought about the way she talks about critical fabulation and were able to challenge the reader to fill in the blanks or ask the questions to understand that what's provided in the written record is not the story. These three men, actually one of them a child, had real lives. They had people who cared about them. They had people who mourned them. They did stuff. They, you know, they were human beings. They were fully human beings. So the story that we've read and that's been written over and over again, this really short little story does not represent these men. And to understand that right here in Northwest Arkansas, right here in Fayetteville, that kind of brutality has happened. And so as you 
learn that and you understand that there is a legacy there and, you know, there's a thread that has not been broken to brutality that occurs today. And that's why I can't find the black community, Rowan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Need to speak to the mayor. I'm speaking to the manager. Now, this project, as you mentioned earlier, is connected to the Equal Justice Initiative and what Brian Stevenson is doing down there. Can you tell us a little bit more about the connection and to about the organization? When we were down in Montgomery experiencing the, the events and the, the monuments, as we were going through the memorial, we were, of course, looking for Washington County. We saw Pulaski County and we saw some of the other counties with their names listed, but we didn't see Washington County. And we knew that there had been lynchings, or we assumed there had been lynchings, right? And then we found out that Washington County's documented lynchings occurred outside of EJI's research parameters because they only did the work from 1870s to 1950s. But then we found out that for communities who want to memorialize people who were lynched at other times, and they have the, some documentation about that, that EGI would offer a community partnership relationship with whatever community. So we were interested in doing that. And so there is a lengthy application process that we had to go through. I mean, it took us almost a year to do the application. (laughs) You know, there was so much that had to be done and context that had to be made and letters that had to be written and that kind of thing to submit as the application package to EJI. And so the way they set this up is once they accept you as a partner, then you get resources and support for conducting your project. They have three requirements. Uh, One is that, you know, of course, you erect a memorial marker. A second one is that you run a racial justice essay contest with uh, high school students. And then the third is that You provide community engagement opportunities. And then two contact people came from EJI for our culminating events this past May when we awarded the scholarships for the students that wrote the essays for the contest and EJI funded those scholarships. They're very interested in supporting communities in doing this remembrance work. I wanted to ask you something else about the collaboration in the group. And were there black people and white people in this group? How were you able to work and collaborate? And how did white supremacy, all these, you know, how it has shaped stories, how it shapes how people interact, how did that affect the group dynamic? You know, it was, I think, challenging at times to work collaboratively across racial lines on this kind of a topic because it's getting together and talking between white people and black people about the history of enslavement and the history of white supremacy. It's uncomfortable. And I'm going to characterize, I'm not saying people would identify themselves this way, but I'm going to characterize the white people as liberal and very willing to be engaged and wanting very much to be part of the solution, you know, and part of opening up discussion and that kind of thing. And I think as facilitator of the group, 
I wanted to be sure that everyone got to speak and everyone had an opportunity to be listened to. And personality-wise, there you know, ran the gamut from people who talk a lot and really like to dominate and others who are more quiet and thoughtful, and then people who are loud and thoughtful. You know, we had everything in the group. And I really valued all of it. And I wanted to make sure everybody had an opportunity in that group. Here's what I found especially challenging in, you know, working across racial lines in this particular project was that because the white people wanted to be respectful, they would often get quiet. And so do you assume that they agree and they understand because they're quiet or they're quiet because they don't want to get in trouble? They didn't know necessarily the vocabulary or terminology. I find that a lot with white people who want to be engaging, mm -hmm. but they're afraid they might say something wrong. They don't want to get in trouble. And then I think in terms of some of the black people, I think we had members who saw themselves as, I'm the teacher, I'm going to tell you this stuff. And when I get on my high horse and I start telling you this stuff, you better listen. Well, I don't think that's appropriate either. And it's not helpful. I can see why you might want to do that because, you know, it gets exhausting to... It's exhausting to cater to white feelings and to make it the central thing yeah. in the project. Yes, I totally understand. But then we're not working as a, as a group. But it was all out there. And that was one of the things I really appreciated. You know, people said what they had to say, except, you know, I'm not sure all of the white people said what they needed to say. You know, there might have been that kind of behind the scenes talking, but we really tried to work on making sure if you've got something to say, no matter what, say it in the group. And then you just have to, you know, have enough backbone to have people come at you about it. And then it was my job to, to facilitate that and to make sure that, you know, we stay respectful in that space. I think part of what was challenging also is that, you know, there can be some cluelessness with white people. One of the white people said something like, well, as we know, all cultures do blah, 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 blah. And I was like, that's, <laughs> all cultures don't do that. <laughs> you know, what you're talking about, that's a Western thing, you know, and a white thing. But, you know, she said it in a very just kind of honest way. That's what she really. So I, I think there was a lot of that where you're seeing things through that lens. We talked some about, you know, fragility. And I don't want to say that, you know, white fragility and black fragility are equal, but I do think that they both exist. And you can tell, I see black fragility when a black person has to react in a big way about just about everything that a white person says. And so, you know, there's some of that that was in the group too. So it was challenging, but it was more rewarding because um, I have to say I was very pleased with how everybody hung in there. I think it was, you know, it was a success from my viewpoint on, on it. you all come to this decision about where to put the marker? Yeah, that was an interesting discussion, too. And this is another one that kind of relates to your previous question about Black people and white people working together on this kind of a project. Because one of the things that a couple of our members felt very strongly about is as white people, they wanted other white people to learn something. And they wanted this to be a teaching opportunity for those other white people who say that 
Well, slavery didn't happen here, and brutality didn't happen here. That was down in the Little Rock area. That was down in the Delta. We didn't have that. You know, we had a kind of a kinder, gentler situation going on up here, right? So they felt very strongly. So it should be on the square because there are all these people that are on the square and it would be seen by them, or it's got to be in some park or something, you know. So we did a a process of suggesting sites. And first we thought we had to decide on, well, why would you suggest a certain site? What are the criteria? What are we looking for in a site? What's the right site? So we had that discussion. Is this about educating people? And we decided, no, it's not. And, you know, a couple of us, some of us felt very strongly. You know, I think for those of us who are black, Anthony, Aaron, and and Randall are our people. They shouldn't be doing extra service in their death to continue to work for white people. Haven't they already been, you know, worked over enough? So, you know, one of our members who actually is a member of the caretaker group at Oak Cemetery, where we actually ended up putting the marker, has said multiple times how he's bonded with these three men. I felt that way too. So no, they don't have to teach white people anything. We want this to be about them. And I think it was Dr. Melandro who said, it's about memorializing and commemorating these men. And we want them to be in a a site of reverence. And that's how we thought of the cemetery and Oaks being the first planned black cemetery. And, you know, we emphasize planned because we know that black bodies are buried in all over the place. But but we thought that Oaks was the right place. And so we had to go before the Oaks Cemetery Board to get permission. And that was not a slam dunk because people have uh, difficult feelings. Black people have difficult feelings about enslavement. And the Oak Cemetery Board is a black group, black community group. Mm -hmm. And some of the members felt pretty strongly that, you know, this is a peaceful place. Please don't bring violence. Yeah, because we know that the Emmett Till site gets shot up all the time. So that must have been a fear Mm -hmm. that this was going to happen in Oak Cemetery. Yeah, they were worried about that. They were worried about, well, what about people just, you know, is this going to bring, are people going to come on tours to see this and that kind of thing? And and then what happens to our peaceful place? And then also just having a marker in the cemetery that has a story of lynching on it. There were other people in the group that felt like, no, it's the perfect place that we want to provide a home for these three men to be revered because, for one thing, their bodies may have been thrown in, you know, right in this area. There's an area, big area of the cemetery that cannot be currently used for graves because there are human remains. There was tension in that. I completely understood what the cemetery caretakers were saying, you know, about their fears. They definitely made sense, but they heard us. We went to two meetings. A group of us came to the second meeting. And then after that meeting, the caretaker board, you know, deliberated. And a couple days later, they informed us that, yes, they would give us permission. Well, Rowan, this has been an amazing conversation. 
and we appreciate the undisciplined approach you had to take to get the story to the forefront and to memorialize these three men. And thank you for visiting the Undisciplined Podcast. It was really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Undisciplined is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.